We're going to be in Genesis chapter 32 today. And we finished up chapter 31 last week. And as we study from Genesis 32 today, I want to read when we get there. We're not going to read them quite yet. But we're going to read down through verse 23 when we get to that in just a moment. So let's try to catch up. It's a little bit like, particularly with Genesis being such a historical book, it's a little bit like a serial on TV last time. So we we have to catch up a little bit sometimes. But Jacob had left the dominion of Laban and headed for Canaan. He did so secretly meaning he didn't announce his departure, uh, rose early in the morning, packed up, which was no small feat. He had, a, had large holdings. He had the mothers of his children, two were wives, two were servants of his wives. And so there were four mothers, 11 children, and Rachel packed up as well. She packed up Laban's family idols, uh, or idol, depending on how many there were. And so here they go, set off for Canaan. They were in eastern, the, the eastern part of the Middle East there, um, east of where Israel would be founded, east of Canaan, the, the Canaan lands. And three days later, Laban hears about Jacob's departure. So he takes off after Jacob and company, and he did so with a band of his countrymen to go with him. So... He was going with more than just a personal plea. They meet up on the east side of the Jordan in the hill country, uh, south of of the the Galilean area, so really quite across the river, uh, the Jordan River from uh, the Canaanite land. And there's a confrontation to start off with over the stolen idols. Yeah, Laban makes his uh, noise about why did you leave in the middle of the night? I couldn't give you a proper send-off. We could have had a big party. I could have kissed my grandchildren. And the same breath, he says, and you took your, my daughters with you like they were uh, captives, uh, kidnapped, if you will. And so out of all of that, he goes, and by the way, you, you stole my idol. And Jacob says, if you find it, in our stuff, whoever has it, they will die, not knowing that Rachel indeed did have them. So Laban begins his search. The countrymen are there. They're used as the judges for fairness. And he searches everywhere. He comes to the camel that Rachel is on, and she will not dismount. He, she tricks her father, saying she's in her menstrual period. And so the search ends, and the idol is not found. Jacob becomes angry. He is uh, very clear about his frustration with Laban, about what it's been like to work for him, how Laban has worked him around over the years. And so they make a covenant to each day on their own side of the Middle East, at least with respect to intending to do harm to one another. And after the covenant is settled, they eat their meal. Laban packs up and leaves and we then find out what happens to Jacob and his company. So let's read Genesis 32, uh, 1 through 23. Who can I call on to do that? Go ahead. 
Jacob also went on his way, for the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanam. <coughs> Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, You are to say to my master Esau, Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, men servants, and maidservants. I have sent this message to inform my master so that I may find favor in your sight. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, he and 400 men with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided his people into two camps, as well as the flocks and herds and camels. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one camp, then the other camp can escape. <laughs> then Jacob declared, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord who told me, go back to your country and to your kindred, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, with only my staff, I came across the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he may come and attack me and the mothers of, and children with me. You have said, I will surely make your, you prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to count. Jacob spent the night there, and from what he had brought with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, two, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his servants in separate herds and told them, Go on ahead of me and keep some distance between the herds. He instructed the one in the lady, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose animals are these before you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau. And behold, Jacob is behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all those following behind the herds. When you meet Esau, you are to say the same thing to him. You are also to say, Look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I will appease Esau with the gift that is going before me. After that, I can face him, and perhaps he will accept me. So Jacob's gifts went on before him while he spent the night at the camp. You said 22? Uh, 20, 23. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. All right. So we see Jacob there in verse 1. Uh, he went on his way. In other words, he picked up his camp, he's ready to go, and he's just starting out, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. He named the place Mahanaim. I hope I'm saying that somewhere close to correct. And so uh, it, it, when, it, when, he, when he gets up and is on his way, these messengers of God meet him. The name for God here is Elohim, the supreme God. So here is God sending his messengers to Jacob to remind him of his presence. There really isn't any interaction recorded here. It's only that Jacob realizes that he's not alone. And he named the camp um, Mahanaim, which means this is God's camp. But it, when we think of camp, we might 
come up with a slightly different twist to it than what the, the word really is in trying to mean. Uh, this isn't a place, this isn't a fire with a tent, and that's my camp. When it says this is God's camp, it's speaking of multiples. In other words, uh, we might say this, this is the camp of some army. So it could be like a way to refer to an army or a group of travelers, a group of dancers. It's, it's, so it's, it's more the people or the <coughs> occupants than it is physically that this is a place we're spending a night other than our house. And so while that's all part of it, um, he's saying this is a multiple camp. So this is not only my camp, it's God's camp. We're all in the same place. It is all here in two camps, meaning his camp and God's camp. Uh, so where are they? Well, the traditional place for this location is east of Jordan in the hill country near Gilead. Okay, that's where we were. It's on the Jabbok River, um, which is midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So if you were looking at the Jordan and its north-south course, if you went a halfway between the two seas and then showed the river out to the east, that would be the Jabbok River, and they're still right in that area. So here's Jacob, and for the first time since he left Laban, he has left one crisis, right? Here's Laban. That was somewhat of a crisis, a confrontation, and Jacob begins to turn his attention to the one that may be upcoming. Because uh, Jacob sent messengers to Esau in the land of Seir and uh, in the land of Edom. Now, that's an interesting set of words. There are some traditional ways of understanding where, Jacob, where Esau was. <clears throat> but there's also some interesting things going on with these words. Um, so, um, what does Esau's name mean, do you recall? Okay, uh, Edom. Well, <clears throat> Esau's name actually is Harry. He was a hairy man. But they also refer to him with the term Edom, which means red. The land of Seir. Seir was hairy or shaggy. So, all of these references to the land... Uh, there's some Jew Jewish tradition that Esau inhabited it and was the one that's the, the primary mover and shaker to get that land called Edom and so on. So it was really being named after Esau. But you can also find a, a lot of evidence there, there were the descendants of Seir. Well, he also, if, if that's not Esau, that's some other hairy person. That's what the name means. But here is, here is Esau down in the land that sure fits with his name. Uh, it's the red land. It's the land of the hairy people. And so here he is. In Genesis 25, 30, let's just go read that real quick. We can pull some of that together with regard to Esau's name and his connection with the term Edom. Who's got that? 25, 30 of Genesis. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Yeah, so that goes actually back to the red stew, but he also was of ruddy complexion. So 
you have all of those things going on with regard to where Esau was living. And so Jacob says, I better start out seeing what we can do with Esau. And in verse 4, he dictates a message for Esau. And he tells him, say to my Lord Esau. And so that terminology right up front, he's holding Esau in high esteem with the way he talks about him. And thus says your servant Jacob, you're the Lord, I'm the servant. He's coming with a, with a posture of, of diminishment compared to Esau. He's not out there holding it over him that he managed to get the blessing that Esau expected and all of those things that happened during the deception of their father. And so he says, here, here am I, my Lord Jake, uh, Esau, I'm your servant, Jacob, and that's the message he's to send, that he has sojourned with Laban and been with Laban until now. Does Jacob need to explain who Laban is? No, no it's a shared uncle. It's, this is their, their mother's brother. And so he says, I've been with Laban until now, been gone quite a while. Uh, we know he worked for 24 years for Laban. And uh, he also goes on in verse 5 to talk about where he's at. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. And I have sent this messenger to tell you, my Lord, that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob is trying to set up a situation where he can meet with Esau and uh, not find himself... Uh, right out of the box in a battle with him. Now, when Jacob left Canaan uh, about 24 years earlier, what were Jacob's thoughts, or what were Esau's thoughts toward Jacob? I want to kill him. Look at Genesis 27:41. Let's read that verse. And then I have another question for us to, to answer. Who's got Genesis 27, 41? Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Okay, put that in our way of talking today. What did he say? My dad's not long left on this earth. When he dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. And those were the words he comforted himself with day and night. So here's the question, is Isaac still alive? What's that? Yes. He is. Now from the text, we don't know if Jacob's aware of that or not. I mean, he's been gone 24 years. His dad was of poor sight and thought his end was near 24 years ago. That's why he gave the blessing. So we don't know from the text if Jacob is aware of that or not. He may very well be, but we just don't know. But what Jacob knew. But we do know, because we'll find out later, that Isaac is certainly still alive. And so Esau may or may not be ready to do battle with Jacob over their past situation. So in verse 6, the messengers get back. And the messengers report, yeah, we found Esau. And it's not just that you're going to meet him. He's coming to meet you. Oh, yes. And he's just got 400 men with him. So um, what does this tell us about Esau? 
He's done all right. He's got friends. He's got influence. He has the ability to marshal a 400-man group. Now, <clears throat> you could say it's pretty clearly implied, but why is Esau bringing 400 men with him? What's that? In case there's a battle. Well, in case there's a battle, maybe <coughs> intending a battle. I mean, uh, uh, compared to Jacob, I mean, Jacob has people. We don't know how many. We don't know if they're prepared to do battle like soldiers would. We don't know Jacob's real strength. Uh, there's just not a lot said here. He's obviously influential. He's got enough people to get into two camps before this is over. And so, but... Uh, Jacob is not exactly excited about that, is he? Um, in verse 7, we find out that he is greatly afraid, distressed. And so he comes up with a strategy. And what's his strategy out of his concern over what Esau's got planned? Split the camp. Split the camp. We'll have two separate groups. And uh, is that so that he can have a bolder battle plan? No, let, let us one group run when the other half are attacked. Kind of, we'll sacrifice half of us to save the other half. Um, and, you know, he divided everything up, the people and the animals, and he gets all of that set so that that, that can occur. And, and he's very clear in the reason he's hoping that one of the two groups can escape if Esau comes to do harm. Does it appear that Jacob could overcome Esau at this point? Well, Jacob's sure not betting on it, is he? Uh, he's, he's got a defensive plan that is pretty much, you know, the old, they say that we're wired as people in an intense situation to fight or flight. And uh, it appears that he's kind of tendency, tendency toward the flight side of it, uh, which kind of fits in with about every way Jacob's behaved so far, right? Um, and so... Here's Jacob distressed. He splits the camps in two, and then we see in verse 9 uh, that Jacob said or declared, and it's clear Jacob is talking to somebody. Who's he talking to in verse 9? God himself, absolutely. This, this is a prayer. Uh, he addresses, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. O Lord, and, and that is Jehovah there, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy, Jacob says, of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me, and the mothers with the children. For you said, speaking to God, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. I, I, um, I would suggest to you this is not the Jacob of old. There was a promise made, or a statement made, might be a better term, by God when Jacob and Esau were born. And what was that statement? Do you remember? That uh, Jacob would be the elder. Jacob, Jacob would be. He would lead the elder. Would, would lead Esau. The younger will lead the older, or the older will serve the younger. 
God made it clear that Jacob was going to be the leader of the two. And when the time came for the blessing that was the real fatherly blessing that would go to the older son, that was normal, but with it also went the, the status of being the child of the promise that was made to Abraham, that Abraham would be a father of many nations, great peoples, lots of people, and through him all the nations would be blessed. When the time came for that to be transferred, how did Jacob wind up receiving that blessing and promise? Through deception. Now we could say that clearly his mother was the leader in that, right? Rebecca said, come here, Jacob, let me tell you how we're going to do this. And was Jacob bold and said, yeah, let's do it. No, he showed his true colors there a little bit. Now, I don't mean this to be negative about Jacob, because frankly, I think he might have been being pretty wise. But he said, whoa, 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 whoa. If we're caught in this, this is not going to go well. And mom basically said, be quiet. I've told you what we're going to do. Let's do it. And so Jacob did it. Now, that was kind of a crisis moment. Here is Jacob, who God said would be the one who would lead the two brothers and he's going to be the child which the promise that was made to Abraham that came down through Isaac was going to occur was this the only way we got to be careful here because history is one and when we do what ifs we start getting into God's situation but is this the only way God could have accomplished that was through their deception no no, if they had not chosen a deceptive route, we could be confident that God had something else in mind. But um, did God know they were going to be deceptive? Yeah. yeah, so did he need plan A ready to go? No, they were already at plan B before it ever got started. So that, thing, that kind of conversation can get a little weird and complicated. But certainly I wouldn't say that God wanted them to be deceptive, but God knew they would be. Um, and so... When you put it all together, that's the nature of Jacob. When he gets over and does his business with Laban, there's one deal that he makes pretty straight up. I think Rachel is the woman I want for a wife. I'm willing to work seven years for Rachel. But that's about the only deal that he doesn't have to become very shrewd about how he operates, partly because Laban is also trying to be very shrewd and take advantage of Jacob. So this is kind of a one-upmanship relationship between Laban and Jacob all the way through. Now Jacob's very clear at the end of this time before he leaves that God has played a significant hand in how, Lab how Jacob's flocks uh, are put together and come out of Laban's flocks in accordance with the agreement they had made. But here's Jacob, and this is a different response. Now it may be that He's a little more desperate. But the other things that have happened is as they have made the journey, there were encounters with God. When was the first encounter after he left? Or maybe where was the first encounter? That might not be a good way of saying it either. When was the first encounter with God after Jacob left home on his way to his ancestors' area? 
It's the dream, Jacob's ladder. We could read it over in Genesis chapter 28. As a matter of fact, let's go look at that pretty quickly. Genesis 28, 10 through 17. There's a lot in that, that passage that we don't want to miss a piece of as we think about Jacob's response right here. Genesis 28, 10 through 17. And Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. <clears throat> he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your descendants shall, and in you and in your descendants shall be, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took that stone he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top. So when Jacob had this encounter with the latter dream, God tells him some things. What are some of the things that God tells him? Taking the same promise that he gave to Isaac and Abraham. Yes, the same kinds of things. You're going to have many descendants. Through your descendants, all the earth will be blessed. And um, you're going to own this land. This land that you're in right now, and Beersheba is going to be your land. Your descendants will have it. This is very much the promise that was given to Isaac and was the promise repeated out of his relationship with Abraham. And so this is the beginning of Jacob seeing God through some eyes of being the man, if you will, the child, but he's not a child. He's certainly a grown man and plus. But he's the man that the promise of God is going to be brought to the people of the earth. And so out of this promise, he gets some truths that include those particular attributes that will be a part of his life. And so when we look at Jacob's prayer, he starts out with addressing God as the father of Abraham God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. And then he reminds God, voices the promise. Now this said, return to your country and to your relatives. This is the encounter with God in a dream back under Laban's control right before he left. And you said, I will prosper you. Verse 10, he goes on to say, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. And he's going to mention one aspect of that. I left with my staff alone. 
I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two companies. So he's giving God the credit for his growth. He's recognizing that God prospered him. God has held him safe thus far. And so he, he voices all this to God. Verse 11 is the, is the first time he makes a request of God. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that we will, he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. And then he goes back to start talking again about what God has said to him and who God is. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. <clears throat> and I want to recognize something here. Jacob, in his prayers, this prayer is divided up, and the larger portion of it is not a request. It includes thanksgiving, and it includes truths about things God has said and things God has done. And I think, I will say, that is really important. When I, <clears throat> I've had some experiences lately that have been rather poignant for me in providing some counsel to other folks. And in that, I have discovered some people, it's been kind of universal in a few, anyway, this has happened a number of times where we will read things together in the Bible as we talk about it, I find out that some of us tend to project facts, statements of truth, what we would call indicatives, out of the scriptures and turn them into action items for us. Um, I don't have a great example. I, we could turn over to Ephesians 1. I don't know if you've ever taken a look at Ephesians, but Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 and it goes on into 3 are all facts about who we are in Christ and yet you can read those and say well this is who I need to become do you see the difference you can say in Ephesians when it says God has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places you can turn that into I need to go after every spiritual gift in the heavenly places and that turns out to be somewhat counterproductive Pursue gifts, yes, um, but and they're, they're things worthy of pursuit, but at the same time, they've already been accredited to you. They've already become a part of your life if you're in Christ. And so it's real easy to turn these things on their ear and they become a do list. Then we can start comparing how well have I done and feel like I'm failing because those things that really God has already given me, I'm not able to procure on my own. And so I think J Jacob's thoughts that he expresses to God about factual things is a lesson to us. There are facts in the scriptures that we need to embrace wholly and completely. And we need to be looking for commands and separate in our mind out the difference between the commands and the facts. Because the facts are truths, and they can be truths that have all different kinds of implications. But nonetheless, here is Jacob looking at some facts, some truths that God has given him. 
uh, he is the God of his father, Isaac, and also of his grandfather, Abraham. And they blessed, God blessed them greatly. And they, you know, in the last encounter, remember Jacob referred to God with the name or the term, the fear of Isaac. It was a relationship that was the proper relationship between the Almighty God and Isaac. But he says, and he says, Oh Lord, you said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. Now, he's putting that in the prayer. You could say, well, he's reminding God of the promise, but he can't remind God of the promise without reminding himself, right? And so he's bringing this promise back to the front. And and he said, "Uh, you told me to go. I'm going. But here I am. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness that you have shown me and all the faithfulness which you've shown to your servant. And... To the point that now, when I left before, I just had the staff. Now I have all of this. And so now I look to you for deliverance. You made the promise. You have done so much so far. I'm not worthy of it. But now deliver me, I pray. This is the request from my hand to my brother. I fear him. I'm, I'm fearing attack. And I'm fearing for the people with me. And then he goes back to the statements that God has previously made. Surely I will prosper you and make your descendants of the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he, he basically makes this prayer on the foundation of God's promises that were true promises. God really made these promises. And so Jacob is saying, I did what you asked. You gave me the promises. Here I am, and I'm scared, and I'm looking to you for deliverance. In verse 13, it says, he spent the night there. And we don't know if God made any response to Jacob at this point yet. But he did, in verse 13, begin to select from what he had a present for his brother Esau. And I don't know, but I would (laughs) guess this was a pretty respectful, kind of impressive present. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels. When's the last time you bought camels milk in the store? I don't know about that one, but anyway. 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. So he's got a collection of animals that is the basis for wealth building in this time and in this part of the world. And he sets them aside for Esau. In verse 16, uh, he (coughs) delivers these to his servants. And he divided them into groups by itself. And he told the, the servant groups, go ahead of me and space out these droves. And he set it up in, I think it was three groups and then he said to the first servant the one that would be leading when you meet Esau and he asks you to whom do you belong where are you going to whom do the animals belong and Jacob gives him a very specific answer these belong to Jacob it is a present sent to who my lord the master this isn't godly kind of talking to my lord Esau so he is 
using language that esteems Esau and by nature uh, puts himself into a respectful um, stance of not trying to lord it over Esau. And so that's the answer. And also say, and behold, look, Jacob, my, my, he is behind us. And Jacob sets that same set of instructions to each of these groups as they will be proceeding toward Esau. And Jacob has a thought, and we see it in verse 18. In verse 18 he says, whoops, wait a minute, uh, I skipped uh, some verses. Uh, verse, well, it's in verse 20. I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So he's sending these gifts out in separate groups. And so Esau will get one, and he will get the message that this was sent out of respect and subservience to Esau. And Esau will accept it, or whatever he does is in Jacob's mind. And then not too long after that, here comes another gift. And so Jacob is maximizing his impact in giving these gifts. And his hope is that by the time I get to Esau, he will be softened up. And he will accept Jacob. In verse 21, so the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. So um, Jacob... Um, stays at the camp and sends all of these on ahead. <coughs> Questions, comments so far? Yeah, Rick, I was just going back to Jacob's prayer. Um, it just kind of struck me that that's a good uh, example of how we should pray. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some other places in the Old Testament where it's invoked, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. You know, and this, yep. this is a Yeah, and, and, and we have a tremendous advantage that Jacob didn't have, to be honest with you, because we have so much in the way of both examples and information in the Old and New Testament that as we take it in, we, we realize that um, Jacob is an early player in this story of God's redemption of mankind. As we move along, we can look to how God blessed David, and we can look at the 23rd Psalm, for example, of how God took care of David. These kinds of things should impact us as we think about how God is taking care of us. But then we get the whole New Testament. We get Christ walking on the earth as the incarnate God, both God and men, who also goes to the cross and pays our sin debt. Jacob and we could quickly agree on one thing. We're stealing my ending a little bit, but that's fine. It's where it fits. We and Jacob could quickly agree on one thing. I'm not worthy. 
Jacob wasn't worthy. And the worthiness of Jacob is the same as the worthiness of us in one small respect. God said, I've picked you out. This is what I'm going to do for you. But there is no washing away of Jacob's sins through Christ, through permanence. I mean, God accepts the faith of the Old Testament saints, and it's out of faith their sins are forgiven. Paul makes that very clear. But it's not as clear in terms of the mechanics of what God is doing. We have this great advantage of living post-Christ. <clears throat> We also have a great advantage of seeing what happened to Christians post-Christ. How were the apostles treated? Were they set up as kings and made lords of the earth? No. They were hauled in front of the Jewish rulers and were beaten for preaching and told, stop it. And what was their response? They rejoiced. Why? Do you remember? They were considered worthy to suffer for Christ. Now that is a paradigm bender. When we realize that they recognized that suffering for Christ was a privilege and only those that were worthy to do so would be suffering, does that not change our paradigm of what it means to live on this planet and live between the time of Christ in the time of the full glorification of the end times and the reestablishment of heaven and the new kingdom and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. You know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a time in here in which we're living in which prospering doesn't mean the same thing that it might mean in another area. Yes, God blesses us and prospers us, but a piece of that might be that we are privileged to suffer for Christ. And when we read, I mean, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, I have read it, I've taught it, I've used it, I've taken it to other people. I'm 100% sure I don't get it. I know it's there, and I get a lot of it. But when you read Ephesians, and the words that are used by Paul to describe what we have received in Christ... I can't get it all in me. I mean, I can read the words and trust the words and believe the words, but my soul ought to react a hundred times more than it does. Is that fair? Does that make sense? And so we have so much truth to live out of that when Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that word truth in there is gigantic. It's gigantic in what he is, and that when you reject him for those that do, they are rejecting the only true truth in the world that can set their lives in order. And to do so is at some level illogical, and so they become people you can't even hardly have a good conversation with on certain topics because they have rejected the foundational truth of what God has done to redeem mankind for himself. And so Jacob has some good truths, and they're very personal. And the truths that we are given through the scriptures should be very personal as well. 
And out of those understandings of who we are in Christ and what God has promised to do and what he has what he intends to take us through, our prayers should take on an order of, okay, I don't know how to handle this, but I know you do, and I trust you to lead me through it. I imagine some of the things that might happen in our coming world, and it's really, frankly, difficult to think about as this world turns its face away from God more and more day by day and becomes more open in its rejection of those that at one day were even pointed to as the people to follow because of their morals, their ethics, and their religious beliefs, and now being set aside and ridiculed. And what that might turn into could be very difficult. I, I don't know how I could stand up to the kinds of persecution that could come out of that but when I look at what Jacob did, the answer is the same. God, I, I don't deserve what you've done so far. It's beyond my ability to grasp it. I thank you for it, and I certainly can't grasp how I'm going to face these difficult days ahead, but you are God, and I pray for you to take me through it. And I think we can expect God to take us through what he brings us to. Okay, I launched off of Bill's comment. Um, those were many of the things that I wanted to bring to us in the end. Let's take a look at what anything else. That was a great, of course, I think it was a great comment. Look how long I took. Any other comments? That was a good comment, Bill. Um, so let's, let's look at the rest of the passage we've selected for today. It says, Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. That was the river that they were camped next to east of the Jordan <clears throat> and he took them and sent them across the stream so he's got his whole group across the stream and he sent them there but uh, he also sent across whatever he had we're going to find out next time that Jacob himself did not cross the stream and he's left himself alone and he has quite an encounter with God. Questions, comments, thoughts? I'd originally set this lesson up to cover what's coming next in his wrestling with God, but there's just no way that we could shoehorn that into today and not make a not not leave too much out. So I held that back. And next time we'll pick that up. But that's what I have for today. Um, and if there's nothing else, we'll close with a word of prayer. Father, we are very mindful that as you founded the family of Abraham, become known as the Jews, as your chosen people, <clears throat> we even get to see from some of Paul's comments that not all the chosen people were the chosen people. But Lord, through Abraham and his offspring, you have brought us blessing beyond description. Blessing in the form of Jesus Christ as a descendant of David to purchase us. And Lord, like Jacob said, we're not worthy. There is nothing we could do, we know that, to be worthy of your kingdom. But you have brought us into your kingdom 
through Christ, and we are greatly blessed by that. Oh, Lord, how we long for the day that the rest of the promises about Jesus will be fulfilled. We look forward to the day when he sits on the throne of David and rules forever. Lord, we so much would desire a government that brought true justice, not this fake stuff that keeps being talked about. Lord, we want the justice that you would bring, the peace you would bring, and the order that you would bring, and the truthfulness you would bring. And Lord, we, we do look forward to that day, and thank you for taking us through the days in between. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs>